Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. So they thought it was a war zone. I was going to get killed and kidnapped and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, look, I'm going. So you guys just have to accept it. And I promise to write you every day that I'm alive. So I went and I think there's just certain places in the world where you step foot in and you just feel like you belong. Whether you were there in your past life, if you believe in that or whatever, but it's in India and in certain Arab countries that I go, I really, really feel like maybe 300,000 years ago, I lived there. is The Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to The Maverick Show. My guest today is Jackie Ung. She is a Taiwanese, Chinese American, born and raised in Los Angeles, who is now a real estate professional, rental property investor digital nomad, travel influencer, and founder of the travel blog, bohemianvagabond.com. She maintains a six-figure real estate career as a title rep for California real estate transactions while traveling the world. And she has built her personal brand to over 100,000 followers on Instagram. Jackie also owns five investment properties in the U.S. that provide her the financial freedom to travel longer and give back to underserved communities in the most needed areas in the world. She spends time in an average of six to 10 countries per year and has now traveled to over 60 different countries. Her blog will take you off the beaten path through ethnography, travel tips, photography, and video, and serve as a travel guide to all your future adventures. Jackie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt. I am so excited that you are on the show today. We have a lot of things in common and a lot of fun stuff to talk about, but let's just set the scene right now and start off by where we are recording this interview from today, I am actually on the east coast of the United States today. I'm in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Asheville, North Carolina. And where are you? I am in Istanbul in the country of Turkey. One of my favorite 
cities. I have actually not done a long-term stay in Istanbul. I usually try to stay places for a month or two when I go there. Istanbul was a shorter stay for me, but I was just completely enamored with the city. I know you've been there for quite a while now, though, so I would love to hear how Turkey has been for you. Yes. So I uh, came to Turkey 10 years ago. I came for a week, mainly in Istanbul. I had a good time. I wasn't completely in love with it where I thought that I would return necessarily. But last August, I had a month trip planned to Lebanon. I had an apartment booked on the beach. But unfortunately, the explosion happened one week before I was supposed to depart. Um, And it was the whole country was a mess. So I decided not to go. And my flight uh, was on Turkish airline with a stopover in Istanbul. So I thought, okay, why not? Like I wasn't so enthusiastic about it. I just thought, well, it's somewhere I can go because most countries um, were and still are close to American citizens because of COVID cases. And so I called Turkish Air and I changed it to three weeks. And because of COVID, all the flights are very flexible and changing. So I thought if I don't like it, I'll come back earlier. If I like it, I'll stay. But that was six months ago. (laughs) And I've just stayed in Turkey this whole time. And uh, I'm still maintaining my title career every uh, weekday evening. And my real estate properties are still doing well, thankfully. Tenants have paid. And I'm blogging when I have time here. That's so awesome. Well, let's go all the way back because I'd like to start at the very beginning and kind of get a sense of your upbringing and, you know, as you were growing up, where you grew up and and sort of the context. And as you were growing up, how did your initial interest in travel and other cultures develop? The first countries I went to were Taiwan when I was a baby and when I was three. So I barely remember it. But growing up in a multicultural family, my grandparents are from China. Then they escaped to Taiwan during the communist takeover. They went to Taiwan and then my parents graduated college and then immigrated to Los Angeles in the early 80s. So I grew up as my first language in Mandarin, eating Chinese food. And I grew up in San Gabriel Valley in East Los Angeles, which is predominantly Hispanic and Asian. So I grew up with a lot of diversity and growing up eating different kinds of food. And I just remember as a kid, I'd sit in the back of my parents' car on the freeway or at a stoplight. And I'd always look at other cars and wonder what their story was. So I think that it started then, even without really knowing that it would grow into interest of traveling. But when I got to high school, my parents started doing a little bit better. And they're also real estate agents. Um, So my mom started taking us traveling with like five, six different Chinese families on these big tour buses throughout Europe and Asia which I hated the tour bus, but I got a taste of traveling. We went to Germany, Austria, Switzerland, Thailand, Hong Kong, China in those days. And I just couldn't wait to grow up, make my own money and travel. And so when I graduated college, my only initial goal was to go to India for a couple months. And I just needed to make $5,000 I calculated so I could backpack, stay at hostels and ashrams until money runs out and then figure it out. But as I was job searching, my mom recommended that I go interview with a title company. And I really never had any interest in getting into real estate because it didn't look so glamorous with my parents doing it. I mean, maybe if they were like Beverly Hills realtors or something, it would look sexier. But for them, it was a struggle for a long time as immigrants, not speaking English well, oversaturated market. So I didn't think that it was something I wanted to do. I've always had more of a creative side, like writing and art and music and stuff. But I interviewed, got hired and thought, I'll do this for two, three months, save the $5,000 and go. But 
instead I stayed and it's been 14 and a half years. That's so awesome. So can you share a little bit about what a title rep is, what your career is, and then also how you do it remotely as a digital nomad? Sure. So title insurance in a nutshell is used in every single real estate transaction, whether it's a purchase or a refinance. The bank requires it. And we cover all properties, residential and commercial. And we ensure that your property is free and clear when we transfer from the seller to the buyer or when you're getting a loan that your liens are clean before getting the new loans, clean and paid off. And what a title rep does is we are sales reps or account executives, or in a fancier word, we do business development. We bring in the business and then we maintain the relationships with the professionals, which are real estate agents, escrow officers, mortgage bankers, real estate attorneys, and developers, investors, anyone that would ever touch a real estate transaction we want to be in front of. And so we bring in these relationships through visiting offices, pre-COVID, of course, similar to pharmaceutical sales reps. So we'd go to anywhere from 10 to 20 offices a day, typically once a week, once every two weeks, just say hello, build your relationships. And in the state of California, there's about 10 title companies right now that are all competing. And just the way that the industry has been structured, they've always sent out sales reps. So it is highly competitive. And in my first five, six years, I really pounded the pavement in West LA, Beverly Hills, which is my territory, and just showing up in every single real estate office. And eight out of 10 times, they said I couldn't come in. Some people were rude, but you just keep going. You go to open houses, you market yourself, you make appointments on LinkedIn, and then bring in the business. And so for me, I do maybe 30 to 40 deals a month, whereas a real estate agent maybe does one a month because we work on volume. Super, super important stuff, of course. Uh, there's a lot of real estate investors that listen to the podcast. And, um, you know, title insurance is a key piece of any real estate transaction. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how you do that remotely. You know, and it's interesting because when I founded Maverick Investor Group with my business partners, we built a real estate brokerage, but we wanted to build it with a location independent infrastructure so that we could run it from anywhere, right? And so we designed it in a way that we're able to help our clients who can be from anywhere, buy rental properties in different states and different markets. And we sort of built this location independent infrastructure, but it's a real estate brokerage. So people are like, how do you do that? How do you run a real estate brokerage from the other side of the world? Because it sounds like something traditionally that you really need to be in one place in order to do. And the same is true, I think, with people's perception of what a title rep does, right? So can you talk a little bit about how you actually run your business and your career remotely? I guess from the beginning, I really built relationships, lifelong relationships. It wasn't just knocking on doors and asking, can I have your business? Please, please, please. It was strategically building these relationships by also giving back, right? Like, not just, can I have your business? It's like, Matt, let's sit down. I want to learn all about your business, Maverick Group. What do you guys sell? What kind of clients you want? And then I'll connect you to my clientele since I have a large network. And that type of relationships are lifelong. Like if I bring you a couple investors, that's way more important, I think, and more appreciative than just, I did a good title job for you. And that's just an example of working smart and also beneficial. So I don't need to see my clients in the traditional way that title reps used to, where literally when I started, my bosses who had been around for 30 years said, you need to go visit real estate offices four times a week. I mean, the same ones, bank three times a week, escrow twice a week. 
I see some of my clients once a year even, but I maintain relationships with email, phone calls, and they don't need to see me because they know I'm always there to answer any problems or questions they have. And also they know I'm always thinking about how I can refer them back business. So it's working smart about these relationships. And in the last year, because of COVID, everyone in California is working from home anyways. So I have my laptop, my phone. It doesn't really matter that I'm across the world. But even in the last couple of years, I've been working at a home half of the week, just doing emails. And I also do maybe 75% commercial real estate. So my clientele is a lot more sophisticated and self-sufficient. I work with mainly the driver type of personalities and alpha types. So they're not very needy. They don't need a lot of handholding. So that's also good for me. But I also work that way. So it's like, instead of this long email, you just have one sentence, get it done, and then you move on. So it also makes my job a lot easier. If we look at the numbers compared to other title reps in my office, I usually do the least amount of deals, but my average title insurance premium is amongst the highest. So maybe an average title cost for somebody else is like $500. Each of mine on average is, let's say, $3,000 because I'm working in the millions. That's awesome. Well, the other thing I want to ask you about is your personal real estate investing, right? Because we have our clients come to us and they have lifestyle goals and they want to get towards their dream lifestyle. And we help them to build portfolios of cash flowing rental properties that can cover more and more of their expenses passively. So they can do things like go out and travel the world and, you know, design their lifestyles and, and create more financial freedom, more location independence and all of that kind of stuff. And you are living that you're doing that. And I wanted to ask if you can share a little bit about your investment property journey and how you built your personal portfolio and what that does for you and your lifestyle? Sure. So when I started in the title business, I was only 21 and a half. I had just graduated college. We grew up in like lower to middle class area. And so in those days and in that environment, the goal is to get a secure government job to work 40 years, have a retirement when you're 65. Or if you're a doctor or you're a lawyer and you make $150,000 a year, you're rich. That's kind of the mentality I grew up with. But as I said, I'm kind of lazy, but I'm very self-sufficient and independent. So it's like, how do we work smart with this situation as well? And because my territory is Beverly Hills, I started meeting very affluent people, as you know, a lot of Persian Jews that own tons of real estate that they started buying in the 70s and 80s. And so I learned from a lot of them. Like I would see that they didn't have to worry about a couple dollars. I saw people were having two-hour lunches and just living this very free life. Like I'm not so into luxury and expensive cars and all that stuff, but I like freedom and flexibility. And so I talked to them. I asked them, like, how did your parents start? And most of them owned apartment buildings. I mean, some of them also do larger ones, retail and all that stuff. But I started learning that if I want to have financial freedom, I need to start building passive income through real estate. And so the first house I bought was 2010. Obviously, that was the best timing because of the recession. So I bought a house in the city of Chino for $270,000 with an FHA financing. So I only put $15,000 down, which is all my savings at the age of 25 and bought the first house. And then every time I saved a good amount of money, I was looking for the next ones but I'm really focused on multi-units. So right now I have uh, three single family houses and then two four units. One four units in South LA, one's in Long Beach. So I also look at areas that are up and coming that are potentially gentrifying or have high rents, which in the case of LA and Long Beach, as you know, 
does have high rents. Definitely. And then you use that to help to finance your travel. The other thing that I know that you do to help finance your travel is credit card, miles, points. You have a whole sort of travel hacking strategy to save huge money on your international flights and things like that. Can you share a little bit about what you do and how you do that? Yes. So I attend travel blogging conferences every year, as well as real estate conference. And I went to a credit card hacking um, class. And this guy taught us that he, between him and his wife, they've got like 80 open credit cards. And they also have over 800 FICO score. And I noticed this on my own too. I think the misconception is that if you have too many credit cards or if you apply too fast, your credit drops significantly, but it's only five, 10 points. Like each time you apply, maybe five, 10 points drops. And then within two months, it goes back up. So I, when I'm back in LA, I usually apply once every three months to an airline credit card because each initial bonus miles are typically 50,000 points or miles, which is equivalent to a round trip flight. And then I'll mark it in my calendar for a year later to cancel it if I don't plan to keep that card. So I don't have the annual fee because that's usually also waived. So I'll do Delta. American Express, Southwest, all the airlines. And then you can also check when you can reapply after you close it. So you can get that bonus miles again. I think the, my favorite one is Chase Sapphire Reserved, which I pay the annual fee, but it's well worth it. And so most of my flights are covered uh, between these points and miles that I accrue. That's so awesome. Well, let's talk a little bit about your travel journey now. And I think India would be a great place to start. You'd mentioned that was really the first place that you wanted to go and do an extended solo trip and all and all of that. And I know you've now been back something like five times. So I would love to hear, you know, about that as the start of your travel journey. And then also, you know, going back, what India means to you, what you love about India and what your experiences there have been. Sure. So I went a year and a half after I started working. I just went for three weeks, not the couple months as I thought, but it was exactly what I needed. I had been wanting to go for so long and I started reading a lot of solo female blog posts on India and connected with a lot of women that had traveled there because it was less common. 13 years ago for solo female travelers, I mean, at least bloggers. And so I went on my own, which terrified my parents because like a lot of people in America and the world, their geography isn't great. So they thought it was a war zone. I was going to get killed and kidnapped and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, look, I'm going. So you guys just have to accept it. And I promise to write you every day that I'm alive. So I went and I think there's just certain places in the world where you step foot in and you just feel like you belong. Whether you were there in your past life, if you believe in that or whatever, India feels like that for me. I mean, I love Latin America. I've been to Africa. I've been to East Asia, but I don't feel it there. I may love going there, but it's in India and in certain Arab countries that I go, I really, really feel like maybe 300,000 years ago, I lived there. So uh, I've returned five times. I have a 10-year visa. I love the food. I love the culture. Every state is like its own country. It's a very complicated place. It's one of the most poverty-stricken and equal place that I've seen. But you just love it for what it is. And I think a lot of people feel this way about India. And then obviously, there's some people that just hate it and never want to go back or even go. Yeah, I love India as well. I have been twice now. And I totally agree with how 
diverse India is from one place to another, right? Like I went on one trip where I spent half the trip in the South in Kerala and then I spent the other half in Amritsar in Punjab. And I mean, just totally different. And then I went on another trip where I spent part of it in Delhi and part of it in Mumbai. And it's just, I mean, from one place to another, it's so, so different, different languages, different culture, different food. I mean, all of this. And of course, India is so massive. It's 1.3 billion people, right? I mean, it's like over 15% of the planet of Earth is in one country. So do you have any specific tips for people that want to travel to India? Maybe some of your favorite places within India or things that you definitely recommend people do when going to India? Yes. Uh, my favorite, I would say, is Jodhpur, which is a blue city in Rajasthan. I think Rajasthan in general is probably my favorite state in India in the northwest bordering Pakistan. You've got beautiful different fabric and saris that the women wear. It's a tribal area. They've got a lot of folk dancing and music that I love. There you can go camel riding, um, be in the desert. It's not as crowded. And the Blue City is very special, which also looks like Chef Shawin in Morocco. I also love Rishikesh, which is in the north. It's a very holy place where the Ganges River flows through. I went there for a yoga festival two years ago. It's where they say maybe yoga was born, but whether that's true or not, I mean, there's tons of yoga classes, meditation, and even it being touristy, it still is so spiritual and beautiful. And I also love Mumbai. I really, really love it there. And I feel safe there. And even my female friends that are there say it's so different than Delhi. We can go out at 3am and just take a taxi or tuk-tuk home and we feel fine. I love the street food there, the Vada Pub, which is like a spicy potato fried kind of slider and all kinds of street food. But I mean, that's not for everybody. But for me, my stomach is pretty strong, so I can handle that. And South India is beautiful. Kerala, as you mentioned, is so stunning. The backwater tours that you can take either for a day or do two nights. And the food in itself is worth a trip to India. North and South is so different. East is different. City to city. So I would really just go eat your way through there. I love that. I totally agree. You know, the other place that you and I both have a lot of love for that also has unbelievable food is Lebanon. Yes. And I want to ask about, you know, what you love about Lebanon and how your experiences in Lebanon have been and why it has such a major place in your heart. Yes. So I had heard of Lebanon, Beirut specifically, as being one of the best party cities in the world. And I always wondered what that meant, right? Because you have parties everywhere. You can go to New York, you can go to Berlin, London, anywhere to party. But what makes the party city like so popular? And most places I go alone, I have no problem with. But for some reason, I felt like I want to know somebody when I go to Lebanon. So I have a client of mine um, who works in commercial real estate in downtown. And we have these like women's dinner once a quarter with five, six of us. And she always said, when I go back, you should come. I was like, yes, I'm waiting for this. And we had dinner at Mastro's over steak and oysters, which I really miss. And she mentioned that she was going back in three weeks. This was in 2017. And I was like, I want to come. And she's like, yeah, of course, come. But I don't think she thought I was serious. It was such a short notice. But I started texting her the next few days, started researching, and then I booked my flight there. And her family, her parents still lived there. It was kind of a family reunion where two of her siblings went back with the kids so I got to really spend time with a family there, with their family gatherings. And I stayed mainly in Batroun, which is an hour north of Beirut, 15 minutes away from Beblos and Jebel. 
And it's a small, cozy, laid back beach town that a lot of travelers have not heard of or know. But there I took my regular yoga classes. You walk around in a bathing suit and beach gear, which you don't imagine of Lebanon, because once again, American media just shows like Gaza bombings every day as a whole Middle East. But it's super liberal, artistic, people with tattoos and dreads and hemp jewelry that they're making, a lot of good seafood, as you can imagine, along the water. Just very cozy, warm people. And the thing about Lebanon, because I've met so many people that have stayed, a lot of expats, they say that they're some of the most welcoming people in the world. And going back to the whole party aspect, it's not just, okay, you open a club and you sell drinks, get drunk and party all night. The people there are so hospitable. You can just meet somebody for two minutes and then they're inviting you on a camping trip the next day or to the mountains that night. And then you've made a lifelong friend and then you meet them, you meet their family and then their family becomes your friends. It doesn't happen everywhere like that. But in Lebanon, it's perfectly normal. And so I fell in love with it. Absolutely. And then I went back again in 2019 for two and a half weeks and I was supposed to go last year for a month or longer. And I do plan to go still, but right now I'm actually waiting for my one-year resident visa in Turkey. I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single-family homes sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, that physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. So I can't leave the country, but once I get it, I'm going to Lebanon. I love that. That's amazing. I also have some very close personal friends of mine that are Lebanese that live in Beirut. And so when I go there, I also have that local connection with folks that can really take you around to all the right spots and kind of bring you into their family and kind of give you that local connection, which I think is is so important and is one of the reasons as well that Lebanon is so meaningful and special to me. I also want to ask you now about a place that you've been that I have not been, but is super high on my bucket list, which is Iran. I've been close to it. I was in Azerbaijan in 2019 for about a month, which has a lot of Persian history, has Zoroastrian fire temples and all that kind of stuff. But I've never actually been to Iran and I wanted to go for so long. I've had really close Persian friends ever since high school and they take me to the Persian community events and all this kind of stuff. And I love Iranian food. And everybody that I've talked to has just said amazing things about Iran. And I know you went and I watched your YouTube videos about it. And when I watched them, I was just like, oh, I think this might be moving up like to the very tippy top of my bucket list after I saw those. But can you share a little bit about what your experience was like in Iran? Yes. So uh, I was invited by Visit Our Iran, which is a uh, like a travel agency marketplace. So they have 40 travel agencies in Iran that they kind of work with. And they wanted to encourage American travelers to Iran because as you know, because of politics and media, 
I think 99% of Americans have no desire to ever go there because they think they're just going to go and get murdered and kidnapped or whatever. But I have many Persian friends from college. I went to UC Riverside. Some of my best friends still are. I love the food. Absolutely love the food. And they, like the Lebanese people, are so hospitable. I'd say even more hospitable. And so I went 2019. They invited five travel bloggers to go from America. And this was around April, 2019. And because of all that was happening between Trump fighting with Iran and all the Twitter warnings and all that stuff, all of the Americans dropped out. They didn't want to go. They're too scared or their families didn't let them go, whatever. I was like, I'm going because I talked to so many Iranian friends and Americans that have been, and they say that it's incredibly safe as long as you follow the rules. And I think that's a misconception. A lot of times is that people automatically associate really strict laws with danger. Of course, Iran's not the safest place in the world, but like Dubai, for example, I think is like the safest place in the world. You have to follow the rules. The rules to me are not just. I don't like a lot of them, but if you're going to be a visitor for a week, just follow the rules and have a good time. So I went and there was a Filipino-British travel blogger that came and they hosted us for one week. We had a tour guide who was also the driver as well as a cameraman, which you saw the videos of. And then I extended another week because I thought, when can I come back again? I'm not sure. So it was just me and the tour guide for the second week touring North Iran. I absolutely loved it. Truly hospitable people. And it also is so tragic to me that because of politics, because of the government, which is like, you know, less than 1% of the population, that the majority of the people have to suffer. Like not just their image from the outside world is all being seen as terrorists, but the sanctions that are put on them, their currency going down so much, their lack of job opportunities and access to the world as a result of these politics is very tragic. And they also felt like not just in Iran, but in Jordan and a lot of Middle Eastern countries they've been, they feel the need to explain themselves every time they meet an American. And I'm like, look, I know, like, trust me, I know. But it's it just kind of, it's sad. But that's the point of travel, right? It's like the human connection. It's learning these things that you would never read in the media. Maybe some documentaries you can watch, but you'll never really know until you go. And I will say that I highly recommend Anthony Bourdain's episode on Iran, as well as Rick Steves. Those two like really portray Iran in a great way. And you learn a lot from that. Yeah. Anthony Bourdain just made such a massive contribution, you know, I mean, and in addition to the Iran episode, I mean, his Palestine episode was absolutely one of the most important ones that I think he ever did as well in terms of humanizing the Palestinians in ways that they have not been on American television and and things like that. So I I tell people to go through all of Bourdain's entire catalog. I mean, I think it's just super, super important stuff. The other place I want to ask you about that I have not been is mainland China. I've been to Hong Kong, I've been to Macau, but I've not yet been to mainland China. And my impression is that I just need to give it like a year of my life. I mean, it just seems so huge. And like, there's so many amazing and extraordinary and different things, kind of like what we were talking about with India to do there. I don't even know where to start, but I, it's very, very high on my list. I've never been. And I wanted to just ask for your tips on mainland China. Yes. So the last time I went was 2011 ish with my dad and my sister for three weeks. And it is a fascinating place. I think one year is very fair, huge country. And just like India, each state is like its own country. 
with different dialects, different kinds of food. I love the food. I mean, Chinese food is my absolute favorite. I love spicy. So if you love spicy, you go to Hunan, Sichuan region. If you love mushrooms, you have the most variety in Yunnan, which is in South China. There was like, I don't know how many, but let's just say dozens of different kinds of mushrooms. So every single meal, you'll have like five, six different kinds at the table. And it is so delicious. And then you have Shanghai, which is such a posh, sophisticated city with the great nightlife and the restaurants, as well as the street food. And then North is known for dumplings and noodles. I guess I'm just talking about food because that's what I love most about China. <laughs> the people can come off very rough just because of their culture, but they are also very warm once you get invited into their homes. There's always so much food that they're feeding you. And it's such a rich history to learn about China and, and their contribution to the world then and now. Yeah, totally, totally agreed. I, I'm so ex- I mean, once I can, you know, once travel opens up again, I'm super excited to start thinking about knocking some of these bucket list items off. I also want to let you talk about Taiwan, though, because uh, I know you have a family connection there as well. I was only there briefly, like, you know, less than a week, and I spent the whole time in Taipei. I still think about those night markets, though, in Taipei, like, oh, my gosh, what an extraordinary place. But I'd love for you to share a little bit about, you know, what Taiwan means to you and what recommendations you'd have for for people that want to experience Taiwan. I absolutely love Taiwan, not just because my parents are from there, but that to me, if there is a country that's close to perfect, I would say Taiwan. Of course, I don't know it because I don't live there. But the people are calm and kind and chill. They leave you alone. I mean, there's a lot of countries you visit that's great, but you get bothered by people or people staring. In Taiwan, they just do their own thing, which really helps with the experience. The night market is probably the number one reason to go. So many different kinds of food to try. Very inexpensive. And people there just love to eat all day and night. Like You just get something small here, like some tempura fish balls. And then the next you get a little bowl of noodles and then you get some egg oyster, which is like popular there. Food's amazing. You also have nightlife there. If you want super safe, I think probably the safest place for travelers and female travelers is, uh, especially. Public transportation is great if you want to do metro, bus or anything. And it's not expensive to travel through. Um, Taipei in itself, you should go for at least four or five days. And then you've got hot springs that you can go for as day trips nearby. Go to the south of Taiwan to explore so much greeneries. So peaceful. I just, I cannot say enough good things about Taiwan. That's awesome. Well, I know you document a lot of this stuff in your blog. I have really enjoyed going through a lot of your posts. Can you talk a little bit though about uh, Bohemian Vagabond and what people can find when they go to your blog? What kind of content are you putting out? How is it structured? All of that. I started it when I went to India. As I said, I promised my parents I'd call them every day to tell them that I... Not call them, email them to tell them I was alive. So I thought instead, I'll just put it on a blog. And it was very casual for friends and family. Like today I did this, this, this. Um, but I just kept writing on it through the years just as a passion project. And then even when blogs became popular the last three, four years... I was never focused on making money from it just because I'm already making really good money in real estate. I kind of feel like sometimes when you mix your true passion with money, it can get conflicted. Like for example, I get hosted uh, by tourism boards and hotels to visit and write about it. And those are all great. I've experienced some things I would have never done on my own, but you're still hired to do that. 
and you have to be on your best behavior. You want to deliver something that's favorable to them. So I've kept it as a passion project, but it really is like a way of me to express my creativity because in real estate is the best way to make money really, as you know, but the creative side of me needs to get out. So you see the name Bohemian Vagabond, you see all the different colors on my Instagram and my website. It really like is what I'm passionate and what I love doing the most. And can you talk a little bit about the types of content that people can find on your blog and what you're putting out there on it? Yeah. So it's focused on solo female travel with a focus on traveling like inexpensive to mid-range. The beginning days was more like backpacking style. And now I budget like $40 a night, which is still pretty budget for American travelers, especially but it's really focused on culture and food more than anything. Like that is what I go for. I don't care about the luxury things. I don't care about every single landmark and museums. I just like to walk. Like I like to walk a whole day and try all the street food. I love getting invited into people's homes, sitting with them or even staying for a night, learning about their culture. And so many times we don't speak the same language, but just the gesture is enough to communicate with somebody And so I try to really focus on that, the culture and food element to it. Can you share a couple of your top tips for solo female travelers and maybe particularly for women that are at the earlier part of their world travel solo journey? Yes, I would say that you, you know, make your list of, let's say, five places that you want to go. And then I really like Lonely Planet. Like it's kind of known for backpackers, but it has really good information. So there you get an idea of the safety. And then from there, I would go to other solo female travel blog pages to see what they have to say about these uh, destinations and what they advise you on how to dress. I think it's really important to try to blend in when you go places. And then if somewhere is a bit more dangerous or not, I would recommend scheduling like an airport pickup from when you first arrive to the country to your first hotel or hotel or Airbnb. And then from there, you can wing it. I mean, for me, I I usually only book the first or second night to see if I want to stay in the city longer or not. I know some people may get nervous about that and want to book everything. But especially these days, there's so much accommodation. You don't have to worry about things booking out. But yeah, I think dressing like a local knowing kind of what areas to avoid. Maybe there's certain alleys or areas you just wouldn't walk around at night by yourself. Another big tip I would say is to hire like a walking tour guide for one day. Because sometimes you'll meet other people in a group you can travel with. Or if you go stay at a hostel or an Airbnb where you rent a room, you'll meet locals and you might get invited out with them. And that's really the best way. And then if the tour guide's good, you can hire them multiple days. And they're kind of like your bodyguard and local friend that you can use. Awesome tips. So Jackie, at this point, with all the travel that you've done, when you reflect back on it, why do you continue to travel? What do you get out of it at this point in your life? What does travel mean to you? For me, it makes me feel alive. They say that there's that wanderlust gene that one in four people have. I don't know whether or not that's scientifically proven, but if it is, I definitely have that. LA is forever going to be home for me. It's where I've always lived. I love LA. I love exploring LA. But after about a month and a half to two and a half months is when I start to itch and I want to go somewhere for at least a couple weeks. And then I go home and I'm okay for a month or so. And then I start itching again. Like I just love seeing new things, smelling new things, eating different kinds of food, meeting people. It makes me feel alive. Like this mundane nine to five 
structure is not for me. I know it's for some people like my dad, for example, needs to eat breakfast, lunch, dinner at this time. Like he doesn't want to rock the boat in any way, but I'm the opposite. I just love learning all the time. That's awesome. Well, one of the other things that I really appreciate about you and how you roll and your blog and everything is that it's very socially conscious. And I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you give back to underserved communities and causes that are important to you. I think the most important thing for me is education and the access to education. I think in America, we take it for granted public education all through high school and even for college is accessible for people that can't afford it. But that's not the case in a lot of parts of the world. And education is the only way to alleviate poverty. So I've been really focused on several NGOs. Room to Read is one of them. Team Seva is a smaller foundation that I support. Well, they're based in LA, but they support several NGOs in India. So the money that I donate and the money that I fundraise, they all go to early education because there are girls dropping out of school in the third grade. If their families can't afford to send all their kids, they'll send the boys first. And then the girls are kind of worthless to them. They're illiterate and they're married off at 10 or 11 because they're burdened to the family. But if we can keep these girls in school to even eighth grade or even 12th grade, and even if they decide to get married later, at least they're literate and which helps their children. And then they also contribute to the economy because if you handicap half of the economy, as in half the population, which are women, then how are you going to grow in, you know, as your country? So I focus on education and most of these countries that are benefiting from the NGOs are in India, Southeast Asia, parts of Africa. That's really awesome. Another blog post that I wanted to appreciate you for particularly is called We Need to Do Better Asians for Black Lives. Can you share a little bit about that post and why you wrote that? Yes. I mean, that phrase, I think, especially became popular again, resurfaced after the civil rights movement was last year, the George Floyd situation that happened. And a lot of Asians rose, like came out to the protests and then they started talking to their families about how we need to stand up for them because Asian Americans are known as model minorities in the U.S. and a lot of them pride themselves over it. But as a result, they become privileged in this culture because people don't see them as threats. In Asian culture, we're taught to, I don't want to say submissive, but we're taught to conform, to not stand out, to not speak up. And so even when Asians were being discriminated against in the early 1900s and the 1950s, where they couldn't even join real estate boards, for example, a lot of them just kept quiet because that's part of our culture. And so we weren't threats to the average Americans that have been here long. So they like us, I guess you can say. But then a lot of Asians just started thinking like, oh, we're superior to other minorities. How come we could, you know, continue just being part of the society and you have black folks that are committing crimes and blah, 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 which is like a lot of what Asians say, whether they're younger or older. And I feel like we need to stand up for them because the civil rights movements, a lot of black Americans have really fought for us to be here. Like it was because of them that Asians had it easier. And even Asians had a lot of rights before black Americans did. And we need to really thank them for it. We need to stand up for them in this time shit that's happening in America that shouldn't be happening in 2021. 
Yeah, I think it's been really amazing to see the Asians that have come out and mobilized and supported the Black Lives Matter movement. And then reciprocally, right now, the other thing that's going on is that there has been a surge in racial violence against Asians in light of all of the racist discourse around the coronavirus. There was something like, you know, 3,000 hate incidents reported in 2020 alone against Asians. And then in 2021, the violence has surged in the United States. I mean, Asian folks and particularly elderly folks have been getting attacked, attacked with weapons, killed, all this kind of stuff. And in response to that, what's been really heartening to see is all of the activists, including a lot of the folks from the black community, have come out. And, you know, right now there are volunteer patrols in Chinatown, in Oakland, and folks are out there just volunteering and patrolling the community to help to defend the Asian community from these attacks and, and keep people safe. So, you know, those types of solidarity, uh, you know, elements are, are so significant, I think, between, you know, the black community and the Asian community in particular. Yes. That's awesome. But I'm so glad that you're highlighting those types of things on your blog and you're sort of, you know, mixing all of that in with your travel reflections and all of that kind of stuff. So uh, big, big fan of your work. So, all right. At this point, Jackie, are you ready to move in to the lightning round? Yes. Let's do it. The lightning round. All right. What is one book that you would most recommend people check out? Maybe one that's really influenced you a lot over the years. Geography of Bliss. I would highly recommend. The writer visits 10 countries and talks about the happiest countries and the least happiest countries. And it talks a lot about culture. Who is one person that you've never met who's currently alive today that you would most love to have dinner with just you and that person? Michelle Obama comes to mind. I think it'd be great to sit with her and talk. Nice. <laughs> what is one piece of advice, if you could go back in time, knowing everything that you know now, that you would give to your 18-year-old self? Honestly, I wouldn't change anything. I think I would just remind my 18-year-old self, who also knew then, to not... You don't have to listen to other people. I mean, advices are great for people that have done things before you, but there's so many naysayers. There's so many people that have told me you can't travel. Like you, Oh, you just want to travel to India. You just want to travel. How are you going to do that? It's impossible. Just, you know, go to your nine to five and retire or travel when you retire at 65 or whatever. Just, you know, you don't have to follow people's stupid advice, I guess. but I knew that at 18 too. It's <laughs> a good tip. All right. Of all the places that you've been, which I know is now over 60 countries and a lot of different places within those countries, what are your top three favorite travel destinations you'd most recommend people check out? I'm going to say India, Lebanon, and Taiwan. Awesome picks. All right. Of all of the rest of the world that you have never been to, what are your top three bucket list destinations, places you'd most like to see that are the highest on your list right now that you've never been? Japan, which I was supposed to go a year ago, but it got canceled because of COVID. Japan, absolutely. Afghanistan looks stunning. And I'll just say South Africa. Awesome. I've spent a good bit of time in both Japan and South Africa. So feel free to uh, hit me up for Rex yes. when you're ready to go there. Also, both amazing food and the wine in South Africa is insane. 
the whiskey and 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 sake and all that in Japan is insane. And then the food in Cape Town, it's it's really incredible. I mean, it's really becoming quite the international culinary destination than Japan obviously is, <laughs> in my opinion. I mean, it's the greatest food country probably in the world. And I, I, I mean, top three anyways, I would say, right? India, I'd put up there. Lebanon, I'd put up there. All these other places we talked about are up there, but Japan may be you know, maybe the overall number one, it's, it's insane. So I know that you are into that and I'm sure that you will really, really love it when you go. So that is awesome. I can't wait. All right, Jackie, I want you to let folks know how they can find you, how they can follow you on social media, how they can check out your blog and your YouTube channel and how you want people to come into your universe. Sure. My brand is Bohemian Vagabond. So you can find that on Instagram. Uh, the blog is bohemianvagabond.com and my YouTube is youtube.com slash Jackie Young. And I welcome people to email me. I have strangers emailing me at least once a week asking for real estate investing advices on certain countries. I'm always really open to sharing and uh, it gives me ideas for what I need to blog more about. Awesome. We are going to link all of that up in the show notes, along with all of the things that we've talked about, including your travel recommendations and the links to the blog posts that I mentioned and all that good stuff. Everything is going to be in one place. So just go to the maverickshow.com, go to the show notes for this episode, and there you will see all of the things we mentioned, along with all of Jackie's contact information. Jackie, this was so awesome. It was so fun. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. All right. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Learn how Maverick Investor Group can help you buy cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber to get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals. Schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks, and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.